What's really good? What's going on? How you doing? How you feeling? It is the Chop Up Show. It's your girl Toya G. Uh, don't be alarmed. Uh, I know the political plug is is not necessarily here in flesh, but he is definitely here in spirit. He's in the background. He's going to be pushing some buttons for us tonight, but it's just going to be me and y'all, right? We're going to have a nice little conversation. Y'all know what to do. If y'all in here and you've been here before, you need to go ahead and jump in the chat. Say what's up. Say good evening. Let us know where you're from. If we ain't talked to you before, you know what I'm saying? Don't be disrespectful. Right, but go ahead and slide in here, see what's good. Kimmy is already in here. Uh, Kaaria is already, you know, getting down with it. So go ahead and jump in there. Also, hit that like, hit that love. You know what's going on. If you're catching us live, make sure other people know about the conversation. It's going to be a good one. Um, you already know this is a Chiefs, this is a Kansas City Chiefs podcast. So we're going to start on that note and really get into some things. Um, and then we're transitioning over into a conversation about fat phobia. Uh, as well that I think is important for the culture. It's important for us uh, as concerned uh, members of our society, of our groups, of our families, of our kinships, of the places where we work, where we study, where we commune to really start to think about this particular component of identity and how it shapes the reality of a lot of people who uh, are who we are or who uh, we are connected to, love on and care about and want to create space for. So um, shout out to VO in the chat. Shout out to everybody here tonight, like I said, go ahead and signal boost this thing because we in the mix. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and get into uh oh, before I get into anything, right? I want to make sure y'all are ready for next week, right? Next week is the last week of Black History Month. Um, and y'all know every year we do a Black History Month Awards, right? So uh, if you are not hip to the Black History Month Awards last year, we did it live at the NAACP Image Awards, right? Right off the red carpet. So if you missed that, you missed the treat, you can go find it, right? It's right here on YouTube. It's also um, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. So you can go see what we talked about last year, but we run it back next Thursday. So don't miss out on the Chop of Show Black History Month Awards. Gonna be a great conversation, great review um, of the year. Uh, and that kind of leads me to getting started with our Black History Month shout out, right? Now, I started this off by saying this is a Chief podcast. You're going to hear us talk about the Chiefs a lot this evening. What's up, D? Good to see you in the chat. You're going to hear you gonna hear us talk about the Chiefs to, a, a lot tonight. Um, and that's because uh, with our Black History Month shout out, I want to start, and it's actually a couple of people in this, in this particular segment of the show, but I got to start off shouting out Patrick Mahomes, right? We know Pat Mahomes, uh, Black man, first Black quarterback to win two uh, Super Bowls, to win two Super Bowl MVPs. And to win two uh, season MVPs in the history of the league. So that's just a bad man. We got to go ahead and shout out. What's up, Hood Therapy? We got to shout out Patrick Mahomes. But I would be remiss, right, in such a legendary game like the one that we saw to not shout out the Philadelphia Eagles' own Jalen Hurts, right? We got to show love to Jalen Hurts. Had a wonderful season, 14 and three, the best uh, team in the NFC. The Chiefs, you know, were the best team in the AFC. So really, the teams rose to the top to have this epic battle. And that man showed up to play a good game of football. Um, had record breaking stats. Um, I believe over 300 yards, passing yards, uh, or total yards of offense, um, uh, a couple touchdown throws, uh, a, a lot of beautiful things happened for him. And this is just the beginning. I, you know, I'm a Mahomes fan. I'm a Chiefs fan. So I'm going to say it wasn't his turn yet. But no disrespect to Jalen Hurts for showing up and, and, and really putting on his half, doing his part to give us a hell of a Super Bowl uh, this past year. Uh, in addition 
to talking about those two giants, those two epic folks. I also want to give some shout outs to some other uh, beautiful black icons that we have in the culture that are really doing amazing things and have done so over the last couple of weeks. So my other Black History Month shout outs are going to go to one. Um, and, and I don't even like this man. I'm a Celtics fan. So it almost disgusts me. Right. To say these things, both as, as a fan of the Celtics. So I got beef with him in the East and he's a Laker now. So I got beef with him in the West. But we got to shout out Mr. LeBron James. Uh, Mr. King James himself for being the scoringest NBA player in the history of the NBA, right? We know that he uh, passed, uh, 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 why am I forgetting the name of the man? Kareem. Yeah, <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right? To be the scoringest man in the history of the league. Thank you, my brother. Um, and it was a beautiful situation last week. And then last but not least, we got to shout out the queen herself, shout out to Beyonce. You know, we uh, end up talking about Be A Whole Lot and how she influences the culture for good, for bad, or for indifference. Uh, but shout out to Beyonce for winning the most Grammys in the history of the Dog on Award show, right? These are, of course, some of the more major icons uh, that we see that are in popular culture. But we are not ignorant to the fact that there's people in the cuts doing a lot of bigger, I won't say bigger, but important and, and, and very significant work as well that might not get all the praise, not, might not get all the attention. So we're going to make sure we talk about some of those folks next week on the Black History Month Awards. We also want y'all's contributions, right? If y'all have uh, categories y'all want us to think about and award, give awards to, drop them in the chat or send it to us on Instagram. You should be following us on IG, right? At the Chop Up Show, right? So if you got some categories you want us to get into, but also if you got some particular people you think we need to be honoring or considering for an award and we need to try to plug them into a category, we're going to do that as well, right? Don't forget, we celebrate trans folk. We celebrate women. We celebrate queer folk. We celebrate... Uh, folks with disabilities, uh, right? We celebrate people and individuals who are doing more than just entertaining us, but really pushing the needle and pushing the mission and push the, pushing the agenda of liberation of people in a bunch of different social contexts. So don't limit yourself, right? We think we're thinking about books and authors. We're thinking about journalism, right? Who's been at the forefront of that? We're thinking about, uh, of course, sports, of course, politics, right? But we really want to hear from y'all about who deserves some love to close out this Black History Month. So shout out to the people who I recognize, Patrick Mahomes, Jalen Hurts, LeBron James, Queen B herself, Beyonce, for getting this week's version of the Black History Month shout outs. But we'll be transitioning to uh, the Black History Month awards next Thursday. So make sure, sure y'all tune in. Uh, got that out the way. Want to do a little bit of a snapshot, right? Before we get into our fat phobia conversation, want to do a little bit of a snapshot. I need y'all in the comments to make sure y'all tapping in with me. Um, but we, we got to go back to the Super Bowl, right? Because a lot of things happened. A lot of football was played. Great game. The Chiefs won. I think it was 37-34. Uh, very beautiful situation. But the first thing I want to talk to y'all about is tell me in the chat, first of all, did y'all watch the Super Bowl? Right? If you, It'd be wild if you didn't. I think there was a, a record-breaking Super Bowl or at least a halftime show, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I know it was a properly watched game. Uh, D, Kim, uh, Kimya, what did, did y'all, did y'all watch the game? Like, tell me what the vibes was with that. I asked this question, right? Because if you did watch the Super Bowl, you probably heard about or experienced this crazy Tubi commercial, right? This crazy Tubi commercial. Tubi had a commercial, right? Shout out to Kimya for talking about Brittany Griner. I definitely got you on that. Um, this crazy Tubi commercial, uh, aired during the Super Bowl that had a lot of people on the edge of their seats. Now, this Tubi commercial, you know, Tubi, Tubi is one of the streaming platforms. It's actually a, um, a, a, mon it's, it's not monetized. It is an ad, 
ad-based streaming, right? So you can watch a lot of stuff for free on Tubi and they definitely getting their word out um, and becoming a bigger platform. And during the commercial, they had Greg Olson and the other commentator, I don't know his name, uh, in a Tubi ad and nobody knew it was a Tubi ad, but they appear on the screen. They sound like they're talking about what's happening in the game. And then all of a sudden on the screen, somebody looks like they flipping through the Tubi app to look for something to watch, right? And then the Tubi, the boop, 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 it keeps doing whatever. And it's like, what the hell is happening? Why is Tubi on or whatever? And then it shoots to the end of the commercial where it's like a Tubi logo and it's telling you that you should watch Tubi. And the reason why this commercial set the internet ablaze and had even me fooled for a second is because the way that it's set up, it literally looked like somebody changed the channel in the middle of the Super Bowl, right? My little homie, Imani, sitting by the Super Bowl, by the TV, not bothering nobody. I'm in the kitchen area. She kind of coloring, doodling, doing her thing in her, her sketchbook. And I was almost like, Imani, why'd you, what, what happened? Why'd you change the channel? Like, what's good? I almost charged this child up for changing the channel. But no, I was fooled by the mystique of this Tubi ad that really had me bugging. And I figured out, I found out I wasn't alone. Right now, I took it calmly. I never said nothing to her. I was able to catch on to what was happening quick enough to where I was just like, oh, okay. No, that was just an ad. We're moving on to the next one. We're all good. And I'm able to laugh about it. But some people, from what I understand, were not able to take that moment in jest in the same ways. So what was discovered um, was, uh, and this, I saw an, an Am I the Asshole post, right? They have this kind of segment on Reddit. And there was a young woman who said that she broke up with her boyfriend over that commercial, right? She begins to explain that her boyfriend who was watching the Super Bowl got so irate with her about turning, thinking she turned the channel that bro, she cussed, she cussed, he cussed her out. He got real aggressive with her. He talking crazy with her. Just really, I mean, threatening to just being mean, right? About the whole channel change the situation and what happened was the comment section was like oh my god that happened to me too oh my god i almost got mad. i got really mad or upset or somebody cussed me out or somebody got cussed out it was a lot of people a lot of relationships as apocalypse meow said that were on the on the tilt during that moment my twitter feed was blowing up with people like y'all what the hell was that what just happened whatever whatever and what is interesting and i found this statistically on, on twitter too was that domestic violence disputes are actually very high during the Super Bowl, right? They actually peak during the Super Bowl. And not, I'm sure that moment caused some friction in a lot of situations, but there are a lot, there's a lot of aggression in an already very aggressive game, right? A lot of high energy, a lot of emotion, a lot of tribal, like I just, you know, I guess inert, like or not inert, but embedded like tribalistic culture. Like I'm going to fight for my tribe and I won't, I don't know what it is about like the masculine triggers in that, but it has been proven statistically that a lot of people go through dom domestic violence issues during football games. So I just, I don't know. I thought that was very interesting. I saw some threads on, on Twitter about, you know, how, just how many, or I can only, people only imagining how many people got frustrated or angry or upset because it was a close game. It was a very slugfest back and forth type of game. And so that Reddit ad, interesting choice, interesting selection, uh, interesting approach. We're here to entertain. They spent millions of dollars to place it, but it definitely caused some friction in some households. Second thing I want to talk to y'all about was this Rihanna performance, right? Um, shout out to Rihanna. She's back. She also very interestingly caused a big buzz because she announced uh, that she was pregnant. Um, and, and the conversation about her pregnancy is also very interesting in connecting it to our fat phobia conversation because there was a lot of conversations about Rihanna's body, 
right? Before the publicist confirmed that she was pregnant, before, you know, we really got a good idea about the great reveal. A lot of people say she was trying to jock Beyonce because, you know, Beyonce did the concert and then revealed that she was pregnant, I think, at the Grammys a few years ago, whatever, when she first had uh, Blue Ivy. Um, but outside of those indicts, it was very alarming. And a lot of people in different social media platforms, TikTok, Twitter, um, I saw a lot of conversations on Facebook were really kind of disgusted with the way that people saw her body as somebody you know just had a child like a year ago. And before she was able to confirm, before people were like, she's pregnant. Look at it. Like, we just got to stop that because we do that to people in real life. Right? People's lives, bodies change, things happen to them, they transform, have life experiences, and they might leave for a while and come back to you in a different shape than the la- when they left you. Right? And so I think, you know, before that information was con- confirmed, even the people I was watching the game with was like, yeah, and there's no indict on them. It's, it's us as a culture. It's us as people who automatically look at bodies, even though we looked at Chad with Bozeman and said, we got to stop looking at people's bodies and making judgments. Even though we looked at a whole bunch of, we we do it all the time when people fall ill. You never know what's happening. When we look at issues of suicide, when we look at Twitch, when we look at a bunch of different people whom we see it in our society deal with things very personally. And we don't know. I thought we made an agreement that we got to stop talking crazy about people's situation until we really know what's going on with them. Because we never know what's going on. So I bring this up, you know, in addition, people was like, oh, Yan, the Beyonce, I mean, the Rihanna performance was whack. It was weak. It was this, it was that, whatever. But I don't think, I think we would be remiss if we did not celebrate her and give her her flowers for popping out and giving the performance that she gave. Shout out to her, especially being pregnant. But also to miss an opportunity to, to just remind each other that mind your business and just enjoy the show until people tell you what was really tea, right? Because that was really hurtful and harmful to see just like how many people just looked at her body and was like, she must be pregnant. Like, no, some people just got a little belly. They got a little tongue. They just got a little stomach. They just doing their thing, living their life. You got to leave space for them too, right? And especially when you say, oh, you look pregnant. You don't know what people are dealing with in terms of their fertility issues or their ability to get pregnant, the desire to get pregnant, the relationship to that. Just stop projecting things on the people. That's been my public service announcement. Last thing I'll say for all of y'all Super Bowl watchers who was hating on that last minute holding call, it is what it is. Okay, that's the last thing I'm going to say. The man tugged the jersey, and then the ref went back and confirmed. I seen the video. He wrapped his hand around his waist. So, if you mad, be mad. If you upset, be upset. If you distressed, God bless. You feel me? I'm rhyming tonight. I'm on to something. But we won the game, fair and square. Last two minutes, y'all got shut out. I already gave my props to Jalen Hurts. I hope he's able to turn the corner, spin the block, and get his ring another day. But this was ours. Shout out to the Kansas City Chiefs. All right. That's that. Open and close case. Talked about the Super Bowl. We will refer to the Super Bowl one more time um, before it's all said and done, which is kind of leading me into who I'm going to talk with today because, you know, she out repping East Coast, close to Philly, 30-minute train ride away, whatever. And so got to talking tough in my text. You know what I'm saying? And I took offense to that, but that's my dog. This is my homie. This is somebody I really grown to um, learn a lot from. Um, um, find good partnership and good insight from and that I really want to bring on to talk to us a little bit about uh, fat phobia and how it shapes things. So we're going to go into the big chop, right, and transition over into the big chop and have a conversation with none other than, you can go ahead and pop on the screen, plug, uh, Kat Schwartz, right? Kat Schwartz. Did I, did I say it right? 
You got it the second time. I just I just found out Kat didn't have no T in her last name, y'all. It's been <laughs> it's shocking. And I got a little accent. So Kat Schwartz, right? Uh is here with us this evening. Uh Kat has a, a beautiful and wonderful background and relationship to the conversation of fat phobia. Um, and it's really kind of taking me up on an offer and an opportunity to expand uh, some of the conversations that we have on the show to really include uh, different perspectives and ideals about people existing. So Kat um, is a suicide prevention and complex trauma specialist. Uh, she is also a uh, over a decade long certified physical therapist. Uh, she uh, has experience as a fat activist and also is also a public speaker, uh, a yoga and meditation specialist, wears many hats. Right. Amazing person uh, with a lot of different uh, vantage points to how people understand themselves, the body, the skin that they're in and how they exist amongst other people. And so, uh, Kat, say what's up to the people. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It, it is an honor to have you. That was completely like that dime out about it was a total shot at me. Listen, <laughs> I had to let <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you were talking back. tough. Yeah. You were talking tough in the text. Well, I will say, this is what I said. I said, I have no doubt that you care more about football than I do, but I'd rather see you cry than my children. <laughs> <laughs> I did Listen, not get my wish. No tears need to be shared. <laughs> that, was a, that was a day of celebration for everybody. Like I said, everybody had a good game, right? It's just, we know somebody has to win, somebody right. has to lose. So and this is a, a friendly a friendly the loss. Rightful winners, the rightful winners. That's it. That's all it is. And no <laughs> team, no shade. Um, but it's amazing to have you, Kat, um, largely because I know you have um, some interesting experiences and some qualifications that really situate you to have this type of conversation. So talk a little bit more about why uniquely your background and your qualifications, your experience bring you to a place to not just talk about fat phobia, but to do so um, with an audience that, let's just be honest about it, are typically black, are typically, typically you know, intersectional in the ways that they are, you know, both black and queer or black and poor or black and whatever, right? How do we and why do you feel like we should gravitate <clears throat> this conversation toward that particular group of people? Absolutely. So it really was my, so professionally, let's start there, right? Mm. My passion about this comes from many places and I can touch on all of them, but professionally in my expertise is regarding healthcare. It, it's actually 20 years that I practice as a physical therapist mm. and I received a, you know, a master's degree in physical therapy in 2002. And I was taught dieting, not just by my family and my society, but then by my master's level program, right? So mm -hmm. it's something that I was very much um, taught and bought into and was prescribing and recommending to my own patients. I was very much um, participating in diet culture, which is to say, always watching what I ate, being very mm -hmm. diligent about getting to the gym and making sure that I um, burned a certain number of calories. And I was and I was doing that because in my own family, so many of my own family members had passed away young from diabetes complications. So, you know, it was something I was taking as a personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even going so far as to prescribe it to my clients. And then in addition to that, I was also severely struggling with my mental health. And I really mm -hmm. had since I was about six years old. <laughs> and it's because of what I now know to be childhood trauma. Um, I was diagnosed after I became suicidal in 2017. Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. And so much of what helped me to really... Um, change my thinking around my self-worth, right? Because suicide, you know, people leave the planet because it's a combination of hopelessness and worthlessness, right? right. And 
and we're taught worthlessness, mm-hmm. right? We're taught mm-hmm. worthlessness by our society when we don't stand on the in, on the top of those hierarchies, right? Wow. So, um, you know, and then hopelessness comes from the fact that we are truly trying to solve a problem with the very thinking and that that went into creating it. So that's, you know, that's a lot of what we want to touch on tonight. It's specific to fat phobia, or as we can call it, anti-fat bias. Exactly, right. right. I also, I want to uh, kind of define anti-fat bias. That way we don't get lost in like, kind of like the same way people are like, oh, homophobia, fear of gay people. It's, it's actually, you know, a, a kind of more developed idea than that. So when we talk about fat phobia, what we mean is, and that's cat, uh, you know, gave you a synonym for it for anti-fat is the implicit and explicit bias of overweight individuals that is rooted in a sense of blame and presumed moral failing, right? The idea that being overweight and or fat um, and an understanding rather that being overweight and or fat is highly stigmatized in Western culture, right? So this is solidified as the system, like systemically and structurally oriented, right? Uh, influential to how we live and how we understand how you should live, how you should be, how you understand your life. This is something embedded into the culture that we have in society and even the subcultures that we exist in, right? As we, you know, zoom out of maybe specifically Western culture and get into Black culture, Brown culture, white culture, popular culture, right? You pick, right? Media, right? Entertainment, right? All of these different segments of our society, how it influences and shapes uh, those particular spaces and places. I also want to offer a disclaimer, Right. Because I think when we start having conversations about fat phobia and about body positivity and about how people relate to the body, um, people uh, think that we are undermining the attendance and maintenance of the body. Right. Nobody's saying and this is my disclaimer that nobody is criticizing or making a referendum on people who do things that make them feel good. Right. Or do things that they understand to be nourishing, fulfilling or sustaining for the body that they're in. So if you have a particular approach and orientation toward what makes your body feel good, do that. Right. We are not undermining that. However, we are refining the way you might understand some of those actions or behaviors. Right. We are refining and want to reshape and re kind of calibrate how you maybe value or prioritize some of those orientations or relationships, largely because some of that might have some baggage of this Western culture that we're about to get into, or some of the various ways that we come to see fat phobia really negatively impact the real life, like the real bread and like the sustainability, the livability of people's lives, right? And particularly black people, right? Particularly fat black people. As we have conversations, and this is the last thing I'll say, Kat, before I turn it over to you, um, but as we talk about black people, or fat people, the intersections between fatness and blackness, or the intersections between maybe fatness and disability, or fatness and mental health, right? And all of these things, and how we uh, kind of deal and unpack that. So let's go back to the Super Bowl that we've been talking trash to each other about. Um, Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> well, you had, when I was backstage, you even started talking about the body shaming that was going on with Rihanna's body, right? Mm-hmm. It's really about stop judging each other on superficial characteristics such as bodies, yes. right? And um, and what we what you know what you and I exchanged uh, texts about after the win was the fact that right in on national television, right, with everybody listening, mm-hmm. um, what was the interviewer's name? I'm um, I'm sorry, uh, Terry Bradshaw. Terry Brat. Yeah, Terry Bradshaw was speaking to about Andy Reid and he said, waddle on over here. Mm-hmm. And he also said at some point, it's something about eating a cheeseburger, go enjoy that cheeseburger, which Absolutely. was you know, explicit, explicit fat phobia. And most people don't blink an eye at that. 
most people would never have had an exchange about that. It would have seen in some way, in some really fucked up way as kind, right? Yeah. Because supposedly shaming fat people is going to make them thin, right? Meanwhile, weight stigma is one of the deadliest consequences, right? When we, when it comes to health, right? Yeah. Physical and mental health are interrelated. I can promise you that both as a physical therapist, a yeah. former physical therapist, and someone who struggled so deeply with my own mental health that I considered taking my own life. Right. When I treated patients in the rehabs who were going through life altering struggles, whether it be strokes or amputations or car accidents, things of that mm -hmm. nature. Of course, there's a mental health component to that. Right. Just yeah. as when I was struggling with the worst of my mental health symptoms, I've never been in so much pain, physical pain in my life. Right. So they are inherently related. Mm -hmm. and we can't separate the two. And as I and I don't know if I said this in the last um, when I was speaking last, but, you know, with my work in suicide prevention, uh, the reason that's related to that is because suicide is the second leading cause of death among anorexics. Mm -hmm. Eating disorders are the deadliest mental illnesses known to, you know, that we have. So mm -hmm. go ahead. I mean, you're saying mental, like I want to be clear that in black and brown communities, we don't really talk a lot about uh, uh, eating disorders. Right. These are not popular conversations to have. These are not things that we think about because of the cultural confines of how we eat and how we think, how we deal with mental health issues. But I guarantee you some of these patients, some of these clients were black folk. Right. Who are anorexic, who are bulimic, even if we're not calling it that calling it that in our regular conversations or in our vocabularies. Right. These are not just white issues or white white people problems or whatever, even though they're kind of couched like that or stigmatized like that, in my experience, amongst Black people. And they're far less likely to be diagnosed in Black people because, and this is something we haven't touched on yet, something that's so important to understand, especially when you... Um, if you read the petition that I, mm -hmm. that I wrote in regards to the medical racism that's occurring in our healthcare system, it's, a, it's centered around the fact that the BMI, which has become the gold standard, we call ourselves, quote, overweight, overweight or underweight or normal weight or obese based on the standards of the BMI or the body mass index, mm -hmm. initially known as the Quetelet Index, I believe. And it was created in the 1800s by a statistician who was looking to quantify the ideal man used mm. only white European men in his of course. Study. Of course. and it was a never intended to it was um, never intended to measure health and it was never intended to be used for individuals only populations so mm. the, the fact that we use this at all and please full credit if you go to my petition you will see a direct link to Dr. Sabrina String's book the uh, fearing the black body the racial roots of fat phobia we can we can trace um, this document that we use as a gold standard in our healthcare system directly to, you know, as um, you know, what, what's pointed to in Dr. String's book, right? And mm -hmm. standard, which, as I just described, is inherently racist, inherently sexist, and meaningless, right? It, it doesn't mean anything for health, right? So based on that, we, as a healthcare system, our doctors prescribe intentional weight loss. You must lose weight, right? So yeah. who's getting that prescription more often, right? People living in larger bodies tend to be people of color, Absolutely. right? So, so, and now you take, you take a body that was perfect as it is, right? We accept diversity in every other aspect of nature, right? In, in plants in trees and in flowers in, in dogs and cats, right? I mean, just look at the variety in those categories. And mm -hmm. yet when it comes to bodies, we've been we we're puzzled. We're puzzled. that 
we're all supposed to look exactly the same. It's bullshit, right? It doesn't even make logical sense. But based on this BMI, which is useless and incredibly harmful, we then take the practice of intentional weight loss and we add a whole new layer of harm because the body sees each and every diet as a biological emergency. Remember, you there were times in recent history where famines, you know, people to this day are starving. Millions of people are starving on this Absolutely. planet, Absolutely. right? There's not equal access to food. So your body takes, your body doesn't know if you're starving because you are don't have access to food or because you're trying to fit in your bikini, nor does it care. Exactly. <laughs> Your body's perceiving this as an emergency, and therefore, even though it's letting go of that weight temporarily, it's always going to be temporary because your body is going to then try to protect you Mm -hmm. by putting on even more weight, by regaining that weight, and for two-thirds of dieters, even more over time. And it makes perfect logical sense when you understand it biologically. Absolutely. I mean, and and, and I I think that biological understanding right, is one that has gone under a lot of transformation. So B.O., I have B.O.'s question up here. So, oh, wow, the BMI is eugenics in not so subtle terms, right? Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, when we look Especially at- when you consider, I'm sorry to interrupt you, that hip, you know, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, you know, um, the Holocaust in terms of the Jewish people that were that were murdered, but, you know, obese people were murdered, disabled people were murdered. I mean, there right. were- there, you know, there were a lot of different categories of, um, you know, it's about class. It's it's all forms of classism. Right. And it's all I mean, about being able to uh, objectively. Right. We are dealing with a field right. that thrive, prides itself in the objectivity it offers to the people whom it's examining. But these orientations that are rooted in the perfect white man, the perfect Eurocentric, the per- perfect Caucasian man, so that the Negroid and the Mongoloid and all of these old classifications that were used in back in old medical textbooks uh, to be able to figure out who they are and what nature of man or what nature of human they were, we're to see if they can fit these, you know, square boxes in these round holes. And that really just isn't how it works. So yeah, like it's kind of de facto eugenics. Um, uh, Apocalypse Meow says, sounds like, uh, blooming box uh, syphilic index, which oh, is okay. new information to me. It's yeah. something that I'm going to take upon myself to kind of look into um, because I'm always looking to expand kind of my range of knowledge on how potentially theories, uh, uh, philosophies of being have shaped who we are. So I'm writing this down blooming box cephalic. Index, and I'm gonna see what that is because I cannot confirm or deny. But now I know to do a little bit of research, and as consciously says, research over research. So I'm gonna do some of that and tap into what I can find out and come back. Um, but you know, I think you know along the lines of what you were saying, we were talking about how you know, and you were mentioning how you know, the logic and the information we understand about the body is proof that the body, you know, the diets don't work right. And that philosophy is shocking to people who have been taught to relate to wanting the des- or having the desire to change in a very particular way is just change what you're doing to just kind of manipulate or tweak here or there and boom, the body that you want. But, you know, I, I think it relates to the idea of fatness being a choice or not, right? We were kind of having that conversation unpack the idea of, of, and I think of that the, if, you know, the, if, lie, the illusion that fatness is a choice. 
Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think it just takes looking at someone like Andy Reid, who I happen to know because he was the Eagles coach for a very long time. And I know mm -hmm. living in the Philly area, I used to see him as a spokesperson for Jenny Craig. You know, he was yeah. very open about his his uh, weight struggles, just like Oprah was. Right. Like and yet, you know, she's still losing or, and gaining that same 30 or so pounds. Right. And so if money was the answer and Oprah and people like um Andy Reid would be would be thin, right? And it is viewed as a choice. The reason that I think it's twofold. The reason that we, as a society, look pat, largely look past fat phobic comments on national TV is one because it's somehow viewed as kind <laughs> to remind that person they're fat, yeah. right? And, and constantly shame and stigmatize them. That's good for their health because it's really terrible to be fat. You know, it's not. It's also terrible to be discriminated against, right? But we're, we're not talking about that part, right? Um, and also that it's viewed as, well, if you're being made fun of for your weight, it's your fault, right? That's on you. That's your choice. You're fat because you're overeating. Let's talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. Largely, this is, and this is something called the set, pet, set point theory. You can look that up in regards to, you know, it's, it's pretty well established that just like every other characteristic of your body, your hair color, your skin color, your eyes, your yeah. foot size, your height, your weight is largely predetermined by your diet, your DNA. It's mm -hmm. that it's a 10 to 20 pound rate, weight range in which your body can go up or down to maintain balance or homeostasis, right? right. It makes sense, <laughs> right? And it also makes sense why a lot of people say, oh, I can get to this certain point, but I just can't seem to get below that, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, so just in and of itself, only about 2% of the population genetically have the body type that we would consider the ideal based on social media and, you know, very, very superficial standards of beauty. Also, mm -hmm largely based in white supremacy, <laughs> right? you know, so, um, so, you know, so that's one factor is DNA is largely a, a predetermined of weight anyway. And then we go mm. into a bunch of other factors, right? The fact that intentional, oops, excuse me, <laughs> the fact that intentional weight loss in and of itself causes weight gain over time. It's the number one predictor of weight gain isn't having done intentional weight loss in the past, right? Sure. A lack of trauma and mental health resources for people of color at a disproportionate rate, right? A yeah. lot of us who've experienced trauma in childhood and since being black in a white supremacist society is a trauma, right, in and of itself, right? Um, your nervous system development is affected by that. And what do kids have control over? What goes in and what comes out, right? So exactly. a lot of kids, myself included, turn to food as traumatized children, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a way that you learn to cope. And as any of us know, when you when you um, find a way that, that works, right? And you don't have anything else to replace that with, of course, it's mm -hmm. difficult when you, you know, you can't have, um, you can't take a, a behavior that's working at least temporarily and then give the person absolutely no resources, exactly. right. feel trauma, and then expect them to walk away from their crutch, <laughs> right? Yes. And I want to I want to come back to that in terms of how cultures and environments are shaped to kind of create uh, the, the the notion of fatness or to create the same bodies that it criticizes, because I think that is kind of a really interesting contradiction. But I want to go to Vio's question. I have a question. So if your weight is not linked to death, what about I'm sorry, linked to health? What about uh, some people being called obese? And I want to because Kat kind of talked about it and explained that when she talked about the BMI, but I want to give an analogy. That might be useful here because obesity or the idea of being obese is 
a construct, right? There is no capital T truth that says this is what obesity is, this is what it's not. Instead, a system has been created to then interpret or to assign a particular weight range and say, if you are within this range or this range, you are obese. The analogy I think of when I think about this arbitrary kind of it's just something that was selected. It's not solid. It's not real. It's not legitimate or it's only been legitimized by the healthcare field and healthcare professionals. If I think about kind of the age of 18 being an adult. Exactly. We know that 18, it does not necessarily indicate adulthood. <laughs> the same way we know that 21 does not necessarily implicate adulthood. Hell, 30. We do know that the nervous system doesn't even fully develop till 26 or 27 years old. So why exactly. isn't that the standard? Exactly. But because of the systems, because of the agreements we've had socially, because of different lawmakers and different incentives to green light certain stages of your life to make you an adult, Right. To make you responsible, responsible for taxes, to make you, uh, you know, uh, 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 criminalized by law in a certain way. Right. They come up with arbitrary ways to say this is when you're an adult. This is when you're this stage of an adult that can drink. This is when you're this stage of an adult that doesn't have to pay for rental cars or extra money for rental cars. Right. Obesity is it's something an, that has been solidified in a system that has been created. It's a perfect analogy. And in fact, in, in for many people, obesity is considered a slur because really you're trying to pathologize something that isn't in its in and of itself pathological. There are mm. plenty of people who are on are, are obese on the BMI as far as the BMI is concerned that are running marathons, right? And are and are and are exactly. eating vegan and are as healthy as they could they're just hold they they just have at, more body fat, right? Because, because body diversity is, is real and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And that's right? why I say, I mean, I think Lizzo is a great example socially of somebody who, you know, is doing his own tours, is doing four, three hour shows, is high cardio, high movement on a vegan diet. Her body is just made how it's made. And we really and come to a turning point where we have to, you know, celebrate and uh, understand, fathom, wrap our minds around the possibilities that what you perceive or expect when you're looking for signs and symbols of health may not be exactly how they materialize still healthy. And, and this, well, and, and just to specific to Liz, Lizzo, if would my definition of health literally being happiness, you know, joy, you're mm-hmm. um, in the moment who's healthier than Lizzo, honestly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, she, she told you she's feeling good as hell. You know what I'm saying? That's literally the name of the song. Right. She's, she's joy embodied. Right. So. Yeah, and before we get into, cause I want to kind of move, into kind of how we materially recognize because a lot of this a lot of fat phobia up to this point and how we're talking about it is like this is how people feel this is how we started to understand it this is how we start to think about it but it has material implications so i want to get away from thoughts and feelings and talk about the materiality of uh, fat phobia and what the bmi creates before i get there i want to dovetail into kind of how we were talking about how fatness ends up being normalized and solidified by the same system that sorry y'all my dog was having a reaction by the same systems that penalize you for being fat. And that's through systemic and structural enabling, right? We talked about on this show before things like food swamps and food deserts, right? And I want to be clear about, you know, the ways that food exists in our society and how the people who have the power to determine health and provide health and provide options and the ability for people to live healthier lives have taken their hands off of those responsibilities and just kind of left people to fend for themselves, particularly black and black and brown people. So the first thing I kind of want to get to when I think about that is uh, food deserts, right? Being, and we've had those, those kind of this language being normalized in our conversations, but misunderstood, 
right? That food deserts can be defined as like the tops grocery store that we know about in Buffalo, right? We know, for example, the and by the way, the shooter, the 18-year-old shooter, who he's 19 now, uh, was sentenced to life in prison. We, we found out out this week for the shooting of, I think, 10 Black people or the murder of 10 Black people and the shooting of, I think, about 15 uh, people total in the Topps grocery store in Buffalo, New York. But what do we know about Topps grocery store, right? It was uh, a, a an oasis, if you will, in a food desert. There was a lot of complicated, emo complicated emotion and feelings around Topps because it was the only Black grocery store in that neighborhood. So that man that came to Buffalo shot up the only black grocery store in that neighborhood and they were forced with a decision. Do we close our only black grocery store because it is such a site of trauma in our community, because it is stolen away people who we know, who we care about, who we love, who we need. And now, you know, going to the store only evokes memories of them. Or do we keep it open right in a food desert and be constantly reminded of the trauma of knowing that white people just show up whenever they want to? And they got a thousand different grocery stores that they can choose from, but they come to our shit, right? And shoot it up and tear it up. But when you don't have healthy options, when literally you're in a desert, right? Where there are just not grocery stores available to you, you're forced to make those types of difficult decisions about the way that structural violence exists. The food swamps is the second part of this conversation I want us to be mindful of because food swamps, which are often conflated with food deserts, are places where, you know, swamps tend to be murky, muddy, heavy. Uh, uh, toxic, if you will. And that is where a lot of Black uh, communities exist, Black and Brown communities, marginalized communities exist, exist as well. And these are places where not only is there not a lot of grocery stores, but the grocery stores that do exist don't have high quality produce, don't have uh, uh, reasonable prices, don't have solid access to good whole foods that people can eat to create healthy diets and healthy lives. And not only that, but they are places where uh, establishments like Family dollars and dollar generals and dollar and food. Uh, 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 what is it? The dollar store uh, uh, with the green sign that just went up on their prices. Uh, dollar Tree. Oh, dollar. You can't forget about the Dollar Tree. I had to remember my Dollar Tree. Right. Are places where people do most of their grocery shopping in a lot of urban and marginalized communities. Right. Not to mention the proliferation which is the high intensity, high volume building of fast food restaurants where you can get to a McDonald's, a Taco Bell, a KFC much easier, much quicker, and which much, with much more value and bang for your buck than you might get from your local grocery store, right? Which can be directly related to, you know, wage discrimination and, you know, wealth inequality. You know, they're all related, you know, and we, 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 keep, we keep expecting individuals to solve societal problems. Exactly, and right. This is a very, very clear example of that because we do take on personal responsibility for our health. Like, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of us feel in, in some ways, I think it really contributes to that, um, to, to that trigger around say, you know, when we, those of us who have the privilege, <laughs> asterisk, mm -hmm. the privilege to eat organically or go to the gym regularly or not work three jobs mm -hmm. or you know, not have multiple children, you know, and um, not being, being, not being primary caretakers for six or single parent, right? right? The reality or be multiply margin, marginalized, right? Like the reality of that is so, so real, right? And yet we act like we are, you know, it's like, you know, we all act like when it comes specifically to weight, we're mm -hmm. taught as though it's so within our control that we are we are failing morally <laughs> if we are not a certain body weight and size. And it's just well, absolute crap. You know, it's yeah, and well. it, it comes from so many different um, so many different levels of, of systemic oppression.
So this analogy, right? Before we jump into kind of ways that fat phobia is made material and solidified materially, there was this analogy we were going back and forth about, and we were trying to decide. And I need y'all in the comments, Bo, Kimya, a couple uh, apocalypse, like y'all kind of chime in here. But there's an analogy that we've been able to kind of see and think through that describes kind of this issue with fatness being a choice or, you know, the diet culture and why it's not solid. Can you allude to that a little bit? Yeah. So the the analogy that we came up with, and please, please tell us if this is offensive, um, is calling yourself fat when you have thin privilege. And we should probably expand on that a little bit. But calling mm-hmm. yourself when you have thin privilege is like a white person calling themselves a person of color because they got a tan. Right. And I Go ahead and explain and kind of unpack. Yeah, well, and, and when we refer to thin privilege, we're specifically referring to, so this is where it gets tricky because of the extremely limited um, standards of the BMI and just what we're exposed to in our, in our media, right? Mm-hmm. We have such unrealistic standards of what thinness or looks like that most of us who are not even a size two or, you know, two or more are considered fat, right? So, so a lot of us, I, I was bullied as a child, you know, for, for being overweight because I used, I used um, food as a coping mechanism for my traumatic, you know, my traumatic circumstances. So, you know, I had personal experience with being shamed for my weight and discriminated against. I felt for my weight. That's how it Mm -hmm. felt to me. Right. So, so I feel like most people feel like they, um, They've experienced this, right? But that is very different. Receiving bullying for, you know, having your a belly that hangs over your jeans is not the same as showing up in an airport and not and, and being forced to buy two seats or not knowing no. when you go to your doctor's office or the movie theater if the seat will accommodate you, right? And receiving literal discrimination in forms of employment opportunities. There's so much assumption made about fat people. Oh, if, if fatness is a choice, then fat people must be lazy and out of control, right? It exactly. just goes together. So, um, and there's such a huge wage gap among fat people. So you can imagine then against fat black women, fat black trans women, right? I mean, you know, th- this is where that intersectionality comes comes along and why we need to care, <laughs> right? Absolutely, right. Right. I mean, and I, I think when I think about that analogy, I automatically think about kind of the statement and most black people know it is like, especially when we see people being imposters to our culture, right? Pro- typically, um, uh, uh, appropriating things that they don't really have knowledge, concept, range, context for. And it's everybody want to be black until it's time to be black, right? And so everybody has, you know, people, especially people within privilege, it's really hard being a person in a bigger body, being a fat person and hearing people who are pretty socially accepted be like, I'm just getting so fat. Right. I'm just so fat. Oh my goodness. Like, it's like, I get it. You are uncomfortable in your skin and I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, monopolize that space or that place. Right. And be like, you can't, you know, have the heavy, no pun intended, heavy feeling of knowing that you don't feel comfortable in your body. But there are just certain experiences you don't have. There are certain contexts, exactly. there are certain ways you'll be uh, oriented and treated. There'll be ways that you uh, that you'll never be talked to it, based on the body that you're in. And so when you say that, it kind of makes me cringe because everybody want to be fat. So it's time to be fat. You really want to be fat. You want to know what it feels like to let's get on a date now and let's let's see what it really looks like for you to be fat you know what i'm saying like it's weird and so and you and i you and i had impacted that that analogy yesterday and as tori is saying in the in the comments you know the the implicit the the analogy there's being more explicit to you're taking on the the identity without the oppression, right? Exactly. Without any, right? And then today we were able to tease, tease out even more nuance and really equate this. It's it's less of an um, analogy to racism as it is to colorism. 
mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. when we place ourselves in a hierarchy, right? You know, yeah. those of us, that's why, you know, um, in the, there are a lot of people who live in fat bodies who are trying to reclaim that word and say, that word does not belong to me. People right. like me, I'm pointing at myself who hold thin privilege, right? That word does not belong to me because I do not suffer any of the, the, the real consequences, oppressive consequences of living in a fat body, especially a, mar- a multiply marginalized one in our society, mm-hmm. right? So it's not, it, it, it's, it's so much deeper than, um, you know, and then just, just like with the word obese, when someone who's small fat or mid fat or not fat at all, mm-hmm. and, it, and is, you know, using that terminology, um, you know, it, there's an implicit, um, there's a, it, it's implicitly bad, Right. Oh, I feel so fat. Like they're just using the word fat to replace disgusting, exactly. comfortable in my body to replace, you know, it's inherently bad. Just like, oh, you're so gay, you know, is used as a slur. Exactly. Right. You know, so there's there's this socially and um, legally acceptable form of discrimination. That's, that's all, yeah, because you, you were kind of breaking down kind of the two specific ways that legal discrimination has really allowed for fat phobia to cause barriers, cause um uh loss cause disadvantage cause oppression in the lives of real people so like those two specific ways unpack because you kind of have shouted them out here and there and interweaving in the conversation but what are the two ways that fat fatness has been criminalized or that legal discrimination has been able to exist around being fat Absolutely. One we touched on already a little bit, which is employment discrimination. It's probably mm-hmm. it's much less likely um, for someone to be explicitly fired for their body size, but it's certainly a huge factor in the lack of hiring practices around fat bodies. It's there are much higher rates of unemployment. There's higher wage gaps among fat employees. Um, so that's the first way. And then the second way, and the way that my petition hopes to address, is the medical discrimination that's going on. And it's as we mm-hmm. talked about before, based on an inherently racist, sexist, and, you know, healthcare is supposed to be evidence-based, right? We mm-hmm. really, we really pride ourselves on that. And we also pride ourselves on something called the Hippocratic Oath, which says do no harm. Yet, exactly. yet we are, we are prescribing something. Now it's important to, for contextually to understand dieting is only as old as I am. I was born in 1979. I'm 44 years old. Dieting really only entered our culture in 1980 with Jane mm-hmm. Fonda. You know, and and in her early leotards, right? That's yeah. when dieting really became a fad and something that most people were doing. So I've been calling it the 43-year failed experiment. Mm-hmm. There's a mountain of evidence to support the fact that fat and thin are not synonyms, right? You and this hurts fat. You have to understand this hurts thin people just as much as it hurts fat people because when we use a meaningless standard to to rate bodies or put bodies on a hierarchy, and we assume bodies on this side of the BMI are fat and on bodies on this side of the BMI are thin, mm-hmm. then people in fat bodies are very often, in fact, more often than not, denied health care. So many, so many mm-hmm. doctors and even insurance companies will will completely deny care for people above a certain a certain BMI until they intentionally lose weight, and then that adds on an entire another layer of harm. Right, Kimmy was saying that a little earlier. I hate no matter what I go to the doctor for, the solution I receive is to diet and lose weight. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and I feel like I watched person with that exact same problem would receive treatment, and that's. And I, I feel like I, I talked. I watched a, a TikTok video where this young lady was talking about 
you know, how because you know, as soon as you go to the doctor, you get waves, you get your height, you get all your updated stats or whatever before you even go in. And so the person, you know, delivering your care is looking at things and is like, you know, and I've had this conversation with my doctors where they start off the conversation. So uh, how's, you know, how, uh, how are you uh, attending to your weight? Right. Like or I've seen some changes or I noticed some changes from here to there or whatever. Like we started off the conversation like that. I'm like, I'm doing what I can trying to stay moving. Just when you know, and I'm trying to keep the conversation positive and talk about all the good things that I'm doing. But at the same time, I feel like this person looking at me like you lazy sack of shit. You ain't been doing nothing. All I see is his numbers on this page. I know I see that they fluctuated and changed. So I'm about to just get that out of the way before I even render your care. And so the, and the same the video. Well, I'm gonna just finish explaining this video. The video concludes with her being like, "I'm actually here for my throat." Like, we are, we've gone into this long conversation about my body and the changes that it's on, and I'm 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 dealing with some tightness and some nodules and some some things that are changing with my throat, and my voice, and so that ain't got nothing to do with what and you need. But- hear accounts like that from fat patients all the time. I stubbed my toe and was told to lose weight. I mean, and I, you know, and I've heard as a physical therapist in the clinic, heard very similar things. I remember a particular patient. Um, was told that her knee her knee pain must be due to her weight, even though she had no knee pain prior to the fall on the knee. And after the fall on the knee, she had knee pain. And yet right. she's being assured that it was due to her weight, right? Um, you know, and, and thin patients are hurt by this too, because thin patients are assumed to be healthy. My my fiance is very petite and she's having card, you know cardiac issues mm-hmm. um, to the point where she actually uh, went to the ER on Christmas day and was referred to a cardiologist. The cardiologist took one look at her petite frame and her 36 year old, you know, age and said, you're fine. And he really wasn't even interested in doing further testing. And when I really uh, pushed him on that. And he started ordering testing. I mean, now we're really discovering now all of a sudden he's concerned, you know, Mm. but it would have been completely missed because of her size, right? Thin and healthy are simply not synonyms and fat and, you know, um, fat and unhealthy are not synonyms either. And what you just described is that fat phobia doesn't just hurt fat people. Right, but that living in a fat phobic world will have people just hurt women. Will have people walking around and misdiagnosing you because on the outside you are what people call skinny fat, or you actually have some type of internal issues that have nothing to do with your weight at all, but they get overlooked because people look at you and say you are the image, you are the Western image, you are the BMI based image of good health, right? And so now you are missing. Uh, uh, deeper interrogations because people are not spending the time well, to be in their job. Perfect, perfect time. I did, I did want to um, address the comment in the, you know, the comment regarding the biggest loser that, you know, trauma around oh, yeah. shows like the biggest loser and my 600 pound life and, you know, entertainment, right? And um, do, a lot of people don't know that Bob, I forget his last name, but the other awful trainer on that show besides Jillian Michaels, um, he had a heart attack in his 40s. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And Jillian Michaels, I just recently saw and I I will 100 percent own up to watching that show as entertainment back in the 2000s. I was still Mm -hmm. in that mindset. I still thought we were doing people a favor, that it was really thinness at all costs, was saving people's lives. Right. And I just recently watched um, a a compilation of Jillian Michaels, um, you know, training. And it's just straight up abusive. I mean, it's truly disturbing to listen to how we talk to people in bigger bodies and that we just, you know, we're, we got our popcorn, you know, like, like, because, and, and, and so much of that is because of our own internalized hatred of our own bodies. Right. right? You know, that's where, that's where these societal concepts become dangerous when we internalize them as truth. 
Absolutely. Kimya with the mic drop here says, like my asthma was worsening and I was told it was because I'm obese and need to lose weight. I asked, don't I need to be able to breathe to lose weight? Maybe your priorities are all out of whack. What are you what are you actually saying? You know what I mean? Like you want me to get moving, you want I can't I can't breathe. And I can give you I can give you at least one one talking point back, which is please, doctor, show me one statistically significant or piece of empirical evidence that shows weight loss, intentional weight loss is effective in the long term and they cannot do it. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And it's why we've watched people like Andy Reid and Oprah balloon up and down despite their intentions despite their money despite their fame despite if it was something you could want or buy or mm-hmm. or have simply because you know be simply because you want it or you can afford it then we wouldn't have um these problems in higher socioeconomic realms would we <laughs> right your body is trying to do you a solid <laughs> your your body's trying to keep you alive and it doesn't care whether that um that shape matches um a meaningless and and frankly oppressive um, ideal, you know. Yes, absolutely. I, I think what we're getting at, especially now that we're unpacking kind of some of the material ways, both in the healthcare industry um, as well as in the employment employment field. Um, and and one of the things that's important to note is that fatness is not a protected class, right? Race, class, gender, uh, sexual orientation, ability—all of those things are legitimized. Right. And have a precedence in these spaces for causing exclusions, causing uh, marginalization, causing oppression, causing violence. So we're able to solidify these things by law. But in a lot of ways, and in a lot of systems, ex- I'm so sorry. I believe there might be one exception to that in San Francisco. But again, mm-hmm. this is something that, you know, largely is, is, is absolutely unprotected. And so systemically and structurally still a long ways to go before we really start to get these types of conversations legitimizing the spaces that allow for people to not succumb to the type of violence we're talking about. And so Kat has been very fundamental in a petition, and I'm going to drop the link to that petition in the chat so that you all can take some time to sign it if you are so interested in taking on things, tools like the BMI head on, right, so that they can stop being legitimized to enforce morbid obesity. Who, who wants to be told that they're morbidly obese? You just fat to death, right? Who wants to be told that they're obese and deal with the stigma of having to walk around with this very arbitrary kind of uh, a red flag on their entire being and existence? And so, Kat, talk to us a little bit about the petition. Tell people about why they should sign it. We got the link in the chat so that they can go and find it. But talk to us about the petition, what spurred it, uh, what inspired it, where it's going from here. Absolutely. So this is a petition that I did write in 2020. It has about 3000 signatures on it, but we needed so many more to get the attention of both the American Medical Association and the National Eating Disorder Association, both of whom are completely ignoring um, the mountain of evidence regarding this. And most alarmingly, the American Academy of Pediatrics just came out with brand new recommendations that weight loss should be discussed with children, I believe, as ages as early as age two, that interventions should be um, thought of at age 12 and bariatric surgery as as um, young as age 13. Um, so it, it's very, very alarming. Um, but the petition addresses the fact that truly because of the BMI's roots and because of the, of the inherent harm 
um, done through the biological backlash when you restrict body and, you know, when you restrict um, or try to intentionally lose weight, this is akin to medical racism, right? This is actually allowing our healthcare system to discriminate against people who are um, inherently more likely to be living in bigger bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Or to have less access to, to, to um, healthy foods. You know, like, you know, is it, is it a coincidence that the same exact areas we're referring to as food swamps are the areas that were redlined, not right? Not, not coincidences at all. at all. So, you know, when it comes to my specific lane, and I want to be very clear that I am not a leader in this movement, mm-hmm. that the things that I discovered for myself in 2015 and the authors of the book Intuitive Eating, which um, gave me um, which gave me the understanding when I, when I speak specifically to um, biological backlash with dieting. It's it's a lot of that information is coming from a book called Intuitive Eating. Those authors were white. They um wrote that book in 1995. But, you know, Mm -hmm. as far as, um, you know, intersectional feminists and, um, you know, body activists, you know, have been talking about this since the 1960s, right? Like long before white women became, you know, um, aware of the issue. So, but my specific lane here is really in, in the realm of healthcare. You know, I am a healthcare professional by training. I'm a mental healthcare professional now by um, personal experience and, and also a lot of um, training in the form of um, how to do so more holistically or mindfully. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I see a huge, you know, there's, there's certain issues that we recognize. And one of them in this country is the alarming rates of um, Black maternal mortality. Right. United States of America. And I think we can honestly draw a link to the fact that we do not allow black women equal access to health care in general. (laughs) Right. Um, So, you know, these are, are these problems we pretend aren't related are absolutely interrelated. And I, there is a specific question to me in the comments, so I don't want to, um, I don't want to miss it. Um, Vio says, I have a question to Kat. In your view, is there a distinction between healthy and unhealthy food? In my life, for example, I chose to reduce sugar, but I want to hear other perspectives. Absolutely. So, you know, when it comes to um, healthy and unhealthy food, right, that's something that's specific to the practice of intuitive eating would be discouraged because food is food is a, a necessity, right? Your food, just like air is a necessity, right? You're, you have to eat food. So when you are um, starving, any food is healthy for you, right? When, when it comes to this issue, it's not so much about categorizing foods or demonizing anybody's choices. If you decide personally to reduce sugar in your diet, because that makes your body feel better, please do. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're doing so because you believe that sugar is bad, that you're bad for eating it, and that maybe if you reduce some sugar, you would lose weight. Don't bother (laughs) because that weight will come back if you're doing it for the purpose of weight loss, whether it's reducing sugar, reducing calories, increasing exercise, increasing vegetables, whatever you're doing, it. if you're doing it for the purpose of weight loss, it will fail. If you're doing it because that behavior for you feels good, then that's intuitive. That's part of practicing intuitive eating. Right. So um, I think it takes educating yourself a little bit more about what I'm referring to specifically with intuitive eating. Um, But because there is um, there's a lot of misunderstanding around that, that it's essentially just a free for all of, you know, people should no longer care at all about about their health. But really, Mm -hmm. it's about 
unpacking the much more um, insidious and um, nuanced aspects of diet culture and how we've all bought into a whole bunch of lies. And then for yourself, deciding where some of these behaviors might fit in, you know, you might not feel great if when you eat a lot of sugar, and you might choose to avoid that, but you're not doing it for the purpose of weight loss, you're doing it because it makes you feel good. Right? I mean, I also think, you know, and this is just in terms of my learning and unlearning, I've been across the body scale and have my own stories that I've decided not to tell you all just about the relationship of my body to weight loss to fitness to all of these things. But in, excuse me, kind of educating myself about the body in ways that are not as startling or as jarring to me and help me build a healthy relationship with the body that I feel comfortable in. One of the things that I really recognize is that we understand what food is, but we don't really understand what food is. And so until I started understanding, you know, especially when we talk about healthy versus unhealthy food, food is energy. Regardless of what food you're eating, food is energy, right? It, it gives you energy. It helps you to, to, to heal to restore. It helps your organ functions. It helps you live optimally. And so really, when you think about engine, you I mean, energy, right? You, it's, it's like gas in a car is the analogy that makes me kind of think about it, right? Yeah. When you think about the food you put in your body, it's about the type of car that you're driving. You don't put this type of, if you wanted this type of vehicle to run this type of way, you modify the things that you put in it. You think about, you orient yourself in that way to make that car ride how it should, right? To give it the energy to get where it's going. This type of car, this type of energy, this type, like, and so we have, <clears throat> excuse me, not necessarily a question of good or bad foods, but a different relationship. It's with what we put in that gets us the end result, the high performance, the mental clarity, the body functionality that allows for us to be the versions of ourselves we want to be, right? And a lot of that goes into unpacking, relearning, and reorienting ourselves into kind of what the food is, what food serves for us, the purpose that it, how it exists from one moment to the next, how we're connecting to it intuitively, right? Based on biologically, how we understand what makes us run the way we need to run. So I won't get down too far because that's a whole nother separate conversation. But um, I know that when we think about intuitive eating and just re- recalibrating how we understand some of these things, it really necessitates a refinement and we'll, we'll, how we talk about and think about what we're talking about. And even to expand on that question about sugar, the pro- the other problem with moralizing food, right, with putting, you know, chocolate in the category of bad and broccoli in the category of good, right, is whenever you've put a moral valuation on someone, something and therefore you are restricting what's bad, right, and eating more of what's good, it's like you've placed something on a – That's really when we talk about food addiction, which I don't believe in. I don't believe food. I think saying you're addicted to food would be like saying you're addicted to air. It's a necessity, right? Mm -hmm. The, The addiction or the binging component comes from the fact that we've restricted it in the first place and we've put such a moral valuation on it. Mm -hmm. And what intuitive eating, let's say, would recommend for anyone who, let's say, you know, you consider yourself a food act, a food addict, and you can't control yourself around sugar or carbohydrates or whatever it is for you, the recommendation would actually be to eat as much of it as possible. And the, and the thinking behind that is habituation, right? Because let's say you haven't had sugar in years, right? Because of the, mm. the dieting that you've done. When you first start to allow yourself to have sugar, your body is going to ask for sugar and sugar and sugar and sure. sugar and sugar. And if you can do that without fear, and that might mean some initial weight gain, right? If you can follow your body's intuition to feed it as much sugar as it's asking for, as regularly as it's asking for it, 
eventually, we're talking maybe some days or even weeks down the road, your body's going to say, okay, wait a second. So now this is available to me whenever mm-hmm. I want it. I no longer mm-hmm. have this. You're going to give me what I'm asking for when I ask for it. And then you're going to be asked, your body's going to stop asking for sugar a lot less. Doesn't that just mm-hmm. make sense? Absolutely. Right. And and so, I mean, there's a lot of, of little gems that are being placed out there. But I know a lot of people, like we say, you know, like to go back and read and learn for themselves. And so as we round out this conversation, Kimia says, tomorrow at work, I'm going to look for intuitive eating. I'm a library circulation specialist as an educator. Shout out to you for keeping it. Look, look for the fourth edition for the most recent, Kimia. And the um, the authors are Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush. Exactly right. And Evelyn, I saw Evelyn another Triboli shout out to you. Amazing. Yeah, The Body Body's Not an Apology <laughs> by Sonia Renee, Renee Taylor is an absolute must. And The Body Keeps the Score by Vander Polk. Exactly. Some good stuff. And then I want to remind you all about Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Roots of Fat Phobia by Dr. Strings, uh, that has also been really formative to the conversation and the knowledge that we've been dropping. So a reading list for you, some things to consider, a petition in the comments. If you scroll up, I'm going to drop that link one more time just in case you missed it. I'm not going to make you go look for it. Um, instead, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and drop it right here. So exactly. So you can share it with your peoples. Put it in the, uh, the, the the caption of the share post. Don't just put share, but we have some people some homework to do um, and let them know that a great conversation has been had between myself, between Kat Schwartz. Cat, uh, uh, where can these people find you online? What is your social media? You can find my business page at Compassionate Healing Services. My website is chsyoga.com. That's the first three letters of Compassionate Healing Services. I can be emailed at cat at chsyoga.com. And you can reach me directly via phone uh, or text at 267-679-5985. For my text, because a lot of people are already on, <clears throat> excuse me, already on their phones right now. What was that number again? 267 267-679-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-5985-
please consider signing the petition and reach out to me if I can uh, be of service to you in any way. Big love to Bo for also agreeing to tap in on the petition as well. Uh, be like Bo, be like Kimya. Thank like you me. so much. Thank you. Months ago, you know what I'm saying. So catch up. This is training is moving forward. A lot of great people. Um, really investing a lot of time and energy and making sure space and place is being held for everybody. No pun intended. Literally, <laughs> space and place being held for everybody. Everybody. Shout out to uh, Apocalypse Meow for tapping in. Everybody else who's been in the comments, everybody who ain't dropped a comment yet but been rocking with us and watching the whole night, everybody who's going to watch or listen to this in the future, shout out to you. We here at the Chopping Show got a lot of love for you on behalf of Cat. On behalf of the political plug, getting ready to send us up out of here. On behalf of the Conscious Collective, y'all, NAACP Image Award voting is still open for the Conscious League. So y'all still need to vote for that man to win. I've been using like all five of my email addresses. Listen, because you can vote every 24 hours. I think voting is open to the 24th. So if you love Conscious League like you know we do, y'all see him right over there, right up there. That's me, the plug. That's Lee. Uh, go to any of Conscious League's social media platforms, the TikTok, the Instagram, consciously.com, and go look for that link. Go click that link and vote for Lee to win the award this year. Voting is still happening. We don't want to miss that. We love y'all. Next Thursday is the Black love History Month Awards. So make sure y'all slide back in, pull up with us, and bring a couple people, bring a couple homies, tell a homie, tell a friend. We've been in this thing, but we've been in this thing, and now we out this thing. We love y'all. See y'all next week. We out. Okay.